Welcome back to the SaturdayBlitz.com podcast. This is Kyle Kensing once again, and more Alabama LSU talk. This time we're looking at things from the Bayou Bengals perspective with Jordan Grove from SaturdayNightSlant.com. You can check out Jordan on Twitter as well, LA Sports Dude. Uh, one of my one of the people that I follow and converse with regularly, and check out his stuff over there on Saturday Night Slant. And Jordan, thank you very much for taking this time to come on the podcast today. Excellent, and we're talking about Game of the Century. Now, the Game of the Century, at least for now, but in my recollection, can't think of another regular season game that has been this big since maybe Notre Dame-Florida State in 93 or so. Uh, This is a game with obvious national championship implications, two best defenses in the country, but also two offenses scoring around 40 points per game. So you got two of the premier programs in college football. You got Les Miles, you got Nick Saban. So... Basically, with all the hype, with all the uh, hubbub, all the talk that's been going on for the past few weeks, uh, months even, what's the buzz around Bayou Nation coming into this game? And is this the biggest game in your recollection uh, as far as a regular season contest that LSU's played? Yeah, as far as the regular season is concerned, this is the biggest game that I can remember. The only thing that comes close to it is the first game of this season, uh, LSU and Oregon. And then there was a game in 1979 before I was born. Uh, USC came down to Death Valley and played LSU. And that game had huge numbers. I mean, that was probably the most hyped game of the regular season uh, before LSU-Oregon. And now this LSU-Alabama game is just eclipsing that. So, uh, yeah, the biggest game. And that's all you hear when going to restaurants, when going out to the grocery store. And just walking around town, people are talking about this LSU-Alabama game. Some people can't even sleep. They're so concerned over it. Um, a lot of people are confident, but every single person you meet thinks this is going to be an extremely close game, and they're all concerned because the referee seems to favor the Crimson Tide whenever games are played in Tuscaloosa. Well, that's absolutely the case. You can watch... Uh... Just check out pretty much any game around the country, and obviously that home field advantage comes in and plays such a huge factor. Uh, the fact that this game is in Tuscaloosa, and you're going to have 100,000-plus going crazy for the Tide, how does LSU deal with that kind of atmosphere, and, and how do you prepare for playing in this kind of environment? Well, uh, you know, it's extremely difficult to do, but LSU knows what type of atmosphere they're going into from playing at-home games in Death Valley and Baton Rouge and seeing the crowd reaction that they get towards the opposing teams whenever Auburn came into Baton Rouge and whenever Florida came into Baton Rouge and whenever Alabama came into Baton Rouge last season, the LSU fans just let them have it. You know, Saturday night in Death Valley is supposed to be one of the toughest venues in the country to play at. So they know what type of hostile environment they're going into in Bryant Denny Stadium. Uh, in order to combat that, you know, practice with you know, the, the motorhead blaring across the town, <laughs> you know, as loud as it can go, um, and just trying to communicate non-verbally at the line of scrimmage and making adjustments like that because they're not going to be able to hear over the crowd noise, especially in the first and second quarter. You know, maybe after halftime, after the game's kind of settled down, um, once it's really close or one side has, you know, a 10-point lead, if that ever happens, then... Like, you know, LSU and, and Alabama for that matter will get to the group 
they're going to be making as much racket as they can whenever Alabama has the ball, but then you have 94-plus making even more noise whenever LSU has the ball. So it's going to be really hard to prepare, prepare for, but I feel like LSU can do that just because of what they play in here in Baton Rouge at Death Valley. Now, some talk that I heard on uh, TV earlier today was that the fact that this is a road game is something that LSU actually sort of relishes. I mean, this is something that if they do win this game, there's going to be no excuses. This is, you know, this is obviously a big win on the road. It makes a bigger statement. Is that something that you've seen uh, really kind of come through in the fans' attitude? And do you anticipate that really being a driving force behind how the team comes out and takes the field at the Bryant-Denny on Saturday? Yeah, I really feel like this is LSU relishes the opportunity to go and beat teams in their stadium. It's just something that Les Miles has instilled in this team ever since he became the head coach at LSU uh, over five years ago. And I mean, in his tenure as uh, head coach of LSU, uh, the night games under Les Miles, Les Miles is forty-eight and four in night games, eleven and one in night road games, and thirty-one and one and night games, no matter what the location is, you know, and that includes bowl games. So LSU, the road warriors, they're going to go out there and try to smack you around in your own home and silence your crowd and make a statement and get that statement win. And that's been Les Miles' M.O. ever since he stepped foot here in Baton Rouge and took over the LSU team. So it's going to be interesting, though, going into this hostile environment and – all those rabid Crimson Tide fans that are going to be yelling uh, Rama Jamma Yellow Hammer at the top <laughs> of their lungs, which I don't even know what that means. You know, <laughs> as, as an SEC fan and a follower of Southeastern Conference football, I haven't looked into what Rama Jammer Yellow Hammer means to anybody. I'm sure <laughs> Wikipedia has an article that I need to look out, but uh, it's, it's a huge game. I know it's been called the game of the century, but because Ohio State and Michigan decided to label that whenever the number one and number two teams met back in 2006, I'm calling it the game of the millennium. And uh, it, it's just going to be one of the biggest biggest games in the history of college football right now, especially now that the SEC has the reputation it does as being the best conference in college football. I love that uh, game of the millennium. I might have to uh, use that on my site with credit, of course. But uh, now you talk about Les Miles and the record that he's compiled in, in those big night games, and just big games in general. Now, obviously, Les Miles taking over for the man that's going to be on the opposite side. Nick Saban came in, did at LSU what he's able to, uh, to have been, been able to do at Alabama now, turn around a program, bring it back to past glory. Is there still a, a feeling of kinship with with Nick Saban amongst LSU fans, or is that completely gone now that he leads a rival? And going to, to follow up on that with Les Miles, is this becoming more and more of his program? Are people more warming up to the fact that this is indeed the Les Miles team? Well, it took LSU fans a long time to warm up to Les Miles just because of how eccentric the man is, how he's just call some crazy calls during the games that LSU fans weren't used to, going from Jerry DiNardo, going to Nick Saban, both pretty um, close to the best coaches that don't have that 
wily type of behavior, wily play calling, and then you get somebody like Les Miles who will just drive you nuts with this clock management, uh, going forward on fourth down. So, yeah, it took a lot of the LSU fan base time to actually accept him as their head coach and accept all of the eccentricities that he brings to the table and all of his weird, peculiar behavior and, you know, all of his grass eating, not wearing his hat properly on his head by pulling it all the way down onto his noggin. You know, you just have all of these things going on that uh, is just peculiar. But this year, seeing how this team has performed, it was the first game of the season against Oregon, and then as it progressed and LSU started winning, they, they beat Oregon convincingly, and then beat Mississippi State in a hostile environment, and Starkville, and then going up to another very tough atmosphere in Morgantown and just laying a smackdown on West Virginia. The LSU fan base really started turning around and accepting Miles for the type of coach that he is. And while you still have some of the diehard Nick Saban fans in Baton Rouge, more and more people are coming over to the side of Miles and supporting him as their head coach and embracing him for the qualities he brings as a leader of the LSU football team. And getting to Nick Saban, a lot of LSU fans appreciate what he did for the program because for a while there in the early 90s, the LSU football program wasn't very good. Uh, Mike Archer was head coach, not a great fit for LSU, didn't really do a whole lot of things, so they hired Jerry DiNardo. He started that Bring Back the Magic campaign. That's whenever, um, in 1997, I believe, uh, number one ranked Florida came into Tiger Stadium. LSU beat them, and then that started their ascendancy back to getting to the top of the SEC. Then Nick Saban took over coming from Michigan State and really turned the program into what LSU fans were hoping it would be because the state of Louisiana was laying dormant as far as recruiting. Uh, Jerry DiNardo started locking down all those in-state recruits. Saban put a clamp on the state of Louisiana, keeping all those local kids here. That's continued on with less miles, but... I don't think LSU would be experiencing the success that they have now. And fans appreciate that and they respect that, but because he went to Alabama, which is one of LSU's most hated rivals, while they respect him, you don't have to like him. Just like the Pittsburgh Steelers respect what the Baltimore Ravens do, doesn't mean you have to like him. And that's the prevailing mindset that LSU fans have towards Saban. We respect you as a head coach, but we damn sure don't like you because of where you went and because of how you left Baton Rouge. Now, when you talk about Les Miles and you mention some of the interesting play calling, uh, obviously the nickname Mad Hatter, uh, you know, sometimes called something of a mad scientist in a way. This year, one of his big surprises was instead of redshirting Jordan Jefferson after the suspension, actually using him almost like an H-back to a certain extent there on the goal line. And then in the Auburn game, obviously, uh, him showing off that he's still got that big arm uh, connecting with Ruben Randall on a long touchdown. How is the two quarterback set going to play a factor into this game, particularly with Alabama boasting a defense as strong as it's been all season? Well, uh, I think they're going to continue doing what they have done in previous games. Les Miles isn't one to drastically tweak his game plan when preparing for different opponents. He's going to keep Jared Lee in as the starter, uh, get him, let him establish a rhythm. They're going to try and establish the run because that's LSU's bread and butter. That's what Miles brings from studying under Bo Schembechler at Michigan. Uh, 
establishing the run, having Lee throw uh, 10 to 15 passes. But you're also going to see Jordan Jefferson, and maybe a little more because it gives Alabama's defense that much more pause And when Jefferson has the ball. Is he going to run? Is he going to pass? What's he going to do? Are they going to run a bootleg? Are they going to run a play action? Are they going to run a jump pass? You know, what are you going to do whenever Jefferson's in there? And that gives the Alabama defense just that much more to prepare for when going against this dual quarterback system that LSU has. I don't think you're going to see a a big variation from what you saw against Auburn or what you saw against Florida or even, um, uh, what was that? I hate to win or draw a point, but uh, Tennessee, that's the game I was thinking of. Uh, Those three games, Florida, Tennessee, and Auburn, you're not going to see a whole lot of variation between uh, what LSU threw at those defenses to what you're going to see thrown against the Alabama defense. Jefferson's going to come in. He's going to run it. They're going to run some play action. They're going to run some some quarterback draws, and they're going to let Jefferson throw it. I'm thinking somewhere between uh, probably six to ten times. And just to keep Alabama's defense on their heels, and they're also going to let Lee toss it around as well. And one thing that plays into the advantage of the passing game for LSU is that their wide receivers, particularly Reuben Randall, is a big physical receiver. Same thing going with Russell Shepard. In Alabama's defense, especially their they aren't as physical as the LSU wide receivers. So I'm expecting LSU to hook up on a couple of long pass plays to help move the chains and to help uh, alleviate the pressure that the Alabama defense is going to put on the running game to use the pass to set up the run almost. But I don't expect Lee to air it out or Jefferson to air it out any more than 28 times. Uh, That seems to be the cap that they put on the passing game is between 25 to 28 times. I don't see them surpassing that at all. Now, Jarrett Lee is a guy that originally wasn't even tabbed to be the starter coming into the season. A lot of questions about him. He had a pretty dubious nickname, Pick Six. Uh, you know, thrown into a tough situation as a freshman, but has really come along and, and established himself as a pretty potent game manager. What has been the key behind Jarrett Lee becoming the quarterback that he is, and how integral has his maturation been to this offense? Pass that he just didn't get enough air underneath. 
so Lee's progress and Lee's progression from that terrible freshman campaign that he had to a very stellar so far senior campaign has been tremendous and has been extremely beneficial to the success that LSU has had, particularly on the offensive side of the ball. Now on the flip side in Alabama, you've got another quarterback who isn't putting up huge numbers, but is doing just enough to facilitate the running game in in A.J. McCarron. How does this defensive line put pressure on A.J. McCarron, and how do they get Alabama out of its comfort zone, maybe force it to throw a little bit more than it would like to, and contain Trent Richardson? Obviously, you aren't going to stop Trent Richardson, a player of his magnitude, but how do they limit his opportunities? Well, when it comes to to A.J. McCarron, the best way to disrupt his passing rhythm and to disrupt him from establishing a rhythm is to try to shut down Trent Richardson. Uh, I don't see that happening, but if they could limit him to less than 100 yards in this game and limit his effectiveness, then thus putting the pressure on A.J. McCarron to try to make those throws against the very talented LSU secondary, then... That's how you get to A.J. McCarron. I don't see the front four of LSU putting a whole lot of pressure on McCarron just because Alabama's offensive line is extremely big and very talented. They've only allowed 12 sacks this this year, and a lot of those could be attributed to uh, the quarterback holding on to the ball too long. Uh, LSU has a very good defensive line. Michael Brockers, Benny Logan, Marquevious Mingo, and Sam Montgomery – they're all very quick, and they can all put pressure on you. So Alabama's offensive line will have their hands full, but I do see them keeping McCarron clean, and if they allow a sack, it's only going to be one. Um, and really, the way to the way that LSU will limit the effectiveness of McCarron in the passing game is to just lock down their corner, uh, lock down their wide receivers. And I see LSU's corners being able to do that whenever you have what looks to be a future first-round draft pick, and Morris Claiborne, and possibly a Heisman Trophy candidate in Tyran Matthews. He can sustain his level of play that he had in the first five games of the season. So it, uh, that, that's how you put the pressure on McCarron. I don't see the um, defensive line putting a ton of pressure on him, and John Chavis, the LSU defensive, defensive coordinator, isn't known to blitz that much. So you're not going to see a whole lot of blitzing, unlike you will see with Nick Saban in Alabama. Now, are you anticipating seeing maybe the strong safety pull up into the box, maybe get eight or nine guys in there to try to combat Trent Richardson? Because you're talking about a guy who, in addition to his superb speed, is also built almost like a linebacker, just with uh, tremendous strength and tremendous size, uh, almost like a bowling ball once he gets going, really tough to stop. And I know that uh, John Chavis had mentioned one of the major game plans for this is is uh, gang tackling. So are you anticipating seeing maybe eight and nine-man formations in the box uh, more frequently than usual? Yeah, definitely. I, that's what I see. Uh, Eric Reed, LSU strong safety, I see him coming into the box. I see them putting as much pressure as they can and trying to shut down all the gaps that uh, Richardson and Eddie Lacy will be running through. And LSU, they're, they're not just one person. They're not a huge physical menace at, on defense that, you, that you're going to see just pop the snot out of you but they're like little daggers 
constantly going at, after you and just bleeding you to death, um, like uh, like a bunch of paper cuts. <laughs> so that's what I see. You're going to put a ton of guys on the ball carrier, just gang tackling all the time, and putting a lot of pressure. I, would, I wouldn't be surprised at all if the first couple of series you see LSU stacking the box, bringing up the safeties, trying to stop the running uh, game, and putting, leaving man-to-man coverage in the back and trusting the LSU secondary to clamp down on Marquise Mays and the other Crimson Tide wide receivers, which I feel that LSU can do, and that would help stymie the Alabama defense. And then, you know, you're, you're shutting them down and starting to win the field position battle because Cody Mandel, the Alabama punter, isn't nearly as effective as LSU's Australian-born punter Brad Wing. Now, that's an interesting point that you bring up, the, the field, possession, uh, field position battle and the special teams. That's something that I'm really going to be keeping a close eye on because uh, I, I wrote on my site, SaturdayBlitz.com, uh, earlier today, uh, Thursday, that I expected this game to actually be relatively high scoring, maybe both teams getting into the high 20s, low 30s. But it being something that comes about gradually, maybe not any points in the first quarter, but as you see those punts in the field position, that sort of being a major factor in the game and how important do you feel field position and time of possession getting the defense a rest is going to be and to that same end with trying to get some ball control going against the Alabama run defense it's only allowed around 45 yards per game how do you establish that early uh, that, that, that's pretty much the biggest question that LSU has is how do you establish the run against Alabama's very, very good run defense, and basically uh, LSU is going to have to trust their offensive line to get the job done, to stay on their blocks, and also trust that their deep running back system that they have, because while Spencer Ware is LSU's premier running back, they go five deep with uh, Michael Ford, with Kenny Hilliard, Terrence McGee, and Alfred Blue and even Jordan Jefferson getting into the running game as well. So you can realistically say that LSU goes six deep. They're just going to have to keep pounding the rock, trying to wear down the the Alabama defense, which is going to be difficult to do because Alabama is almost as deep as LSU on defense. But what plays in LSU's favor is that Brad Wing is a little bit more effective whenever it comes to punting. Um... Average punts, uh, LSU ranks sixth. They have a little over 41, close to 42 yards uh, average punt, while Alabama is 36 yards. So you have about a five to six yard difference, and over time that adds up. And one thing that Brad Wing has been extremely effective in is coffin corner punts, and he has killed numerous punts within the 10-yard line, which only plays into the aggressive LSU defense's hands. Well, let's not forget, too, that Brad Wing, so long as he doesn't stick his arms out, is also a very effective facet to the run game. <laughs> yeah, he is. Man, <laughs> I can't believe they called that. Man, I was, everybody over here was hot in whatever they called that. That was that was an astounding call. I was uh, I'm still pretty miffed by it, as I'm sure Brad is. Uh, you, you 
break off a big run like that at punter and score a touchdown, have it called back on such a ridiculous technicality is a little disheartening. Yeah, uh, I, I completely agree with you. You have a punter who is not used to being in the end zone, especially uh, when it comes to not punting. You know, he's running, he's going to score a touchdown, he gets a little excited, puts his arms out, and they call him for celebrating. Oh, are taunting. And my take on it is if you're intimidated by a punter, you don't need to be on a football team. <laughs> a punter should not be intimidating you, and that's, that's what taunting is. You're, you're being taunted. You're being intimidated by somebody else, and it's the punter. He's not going to intimidate you. He's probably the least intimidating player on the field. So if your ass is getting intimidated by a punter, you, you just need to take your helmet off and walk home. <laughs> uh, that's a good point. I, I agree with you wholeheartedly. Now, uh, looking beyond this game, assuming LSU does go into uh, Bryant Denny, pull off the win, uh, leaves the number one team in the nation. Now, the rest of the way, you've got uh, the body bag homecoming game with Western Kentucky and Arkansas, number seven, but obviously not at the same class as Alabama and LSU. And then the SEC title game, the East has obviously been weighed down, uh, whether it's Georgia or South Carolina. The Tigers should presumably have uh, an easy time there. Where would this team rank in the pantheon of LSU programs if they were to get to that BCS title game and if they were to beat an Alabama team that's been as as impressive as this one has in Alabama? LSU were to win and Brian Denny and beat number two Alabama to go along with making it to the BCS National Championship game and playing um, we'll just going to throw out Oklahoma State if they were to do that I think that would go down as being the best LSU football team in the history of LSU football just because of who they played. They would have knocked off what is it, seven ranked opponents uh, eight ranked opponents you know the at the time, the third-ranked team of the country in Oregon, uh, the number two-ranked team in Alabama, and then who knows where Auburn, I mean, uh, who knows where Arkansas will be ranked coming into the last game of the season. That would rank, I don't think any other LSU football program has done that. And they, if, if they were to do that, and assuming they play Oklahoma State, Oklahoma State would then be ranked number two if they were to beat Oklahoma State in the national championship game, beating two number twos in one season, that that, that would go down as being the best and greatest LSU football team in the annals of LSU football. Wow, and that's be hard pressed to disagree. I mean, they've played pretty intimidating schedule uh, facing Oregon, the last year's national runner-up, on a neutral field to start the season, going to Morgantown where there's always the threat of arson, and playing an SEC schedule, whether it's a down SEC or not, the fact remains that it's the best conference in college football. And speaking of conferences, uh, we're going to leave this game in Tuscaloosa with at least one unbeaten fallen from the ranks, but one of the teams that remains in that discussion, Boise State. Uh, Today, the Idaho State uh, Board of Education, I believe it was, gave uh, Boise State authorization to leave the Mountain West, which had just joined for the Big East. And before we started recording, we're talking a little bit about conference realignment. And uh, Jordan on SaturdayNightSlant.com, you uh, wrote a little bit about the conference realignment mess as it continues to unfold. Uh, I'm interested in getting your thoughts on that, particularly what you see the Big East doing, what John Marinato's got uh, cooking out there. 
I'm, I'm actually a very, very big fan of what John Marinato is doing, which is surprising for me to say because I think he's outside of Dan Beebe, who uh, <laughs> was I thought was one of the worst conference commissioners out there, but his uh, persona on Twitter is absolutely amazing. <laughs> uh, John Marinato is not a very good conference commissioner, just seeing teams like Virginia Tech, Miami, Boston College, and now West Virginia, Syracuse, and Pitt all leaving, I do think he's doing the best for his conference, which could be better for them in the long run, by going after some of the cream of the crop of the non-automatic qualifying conferences, Boise State, Houston, Southern Methodist, um, you have Central Florida going, trying to get the service academies and Army, I mean, uh, not Army, uh, and Air Force and Navy, and even if they could get BYU to get a Western contingent in that conference, that would be huge. Already what he's doing, going after very good teams in large markets to help build that TV contract that they have, it's, he's doing the best that he can do right now. And the most recent article I put up on Saturday Night Slant explained why I think going to a 14-team conference would be the best thing for the Big East because it would protect against further expansion because Louisville and Cincinnati are rumored to be candidates for the Big 12 if they were to expand back to 12 teams. So then, say those two depart, you're still at 12 teams, you still have that conference championship game, and you're still ge- uh, geographically aligned to where you don't have Boise State making the trip out to Stores, Connecticut to play UConn every other year because that's close to a 2,300-mile trip. You know, that that's a lot of money, and Boise State's endowment is only $61 million, so they don't have a whole lot of spare cash, you know, lying around. And what's interesting for me, the, with the Big East potentially expanding westward, if you do end up with uh, those teams in Texas, which is still a bit of a trek for Boise, but then if you go BYU, uh, BYU is a program that in the 2000s had multiple double-digit win seasons. So you've got them, you've got their national following, and really you turn the Big East into a viable television power just the fact that it's spread out so far across the country and dabbling into so many TV markets. Oh, exactly. And, too, that's why I think they should go to 14 teams because while Boise doesn't bring a large TV market, they do bring in, I mean, it's kind of a, a, a morbid curiosity to people that are watching college football. They, they've heard about Boise. They've heard about their crazy offense and about how fun it is to watch, so they're going to want to tune in. But then you also have Houston in the Houston market, obviously. You have SMU in the Dallas market, Central Florida in the Orlando market. So you're bringing in these big, big markets. And not only that, but you have the national attention of the service academies and Air Force and Navy and, and the servicemen and women wanting to watch those programs play. So you have a national following there. And I also think the two other teams that they should invite are, well, three other teams, BYU being one, because you know then you get the Mormon population wanting to tune in and BYU joining a nation-expanding conference like the Big East. It would make them... Uh, help recruit more out of the Mormon population spread out across the country, and then go after Tulsa, which is a very good football program in the 61st largest media market. They also bring in a very solid basketball program, and then also bring in Memphis. And now Memphis 
has a very crappy football program, <laughs> but they're extremely good in basketball, and it's also kind of a bridge going from the east to the west because you have Memphis. From there, you can go to Tulsa. You can go to Houston. You can go to Dallas, and then further west. And the way I have the division set up, if you would do that, you know, in a west division, you'd have Air Force, Boise, BYU, Houston, Memphis, SMU, and Tulsa, east division, Louisville, Navy, Rutgers, UCF, USF, and UConn. So all geographically aligned, all getting those large medium markets and building the strongest conference, which then you could probably get a better television deal from ESPN or in ABC or CBS, whichever one, Fox, whichever one you're negotiating with. Memphis is an interesting one for me. Uh, it's a name that's come up at the Big East before. Uh, obviously, their current struggles in football do uh, does put some of a, something of a damper. But that's a program that before just the last couple of years has played in, uh, I believe, bowl games in, in something like four out of the five previous seasons. So there's certainly the potential there that they could turn back into something special. And I would imagine that being in an AQ conference would certainly help that. Oh, uh, definitely, and that's one thing, too, that benefits the AQ Conference. You can take a football program like Memphis and even Tulsa, two teams that are, well, you know, one not very good in Memphis and one that has sustained a certain level of of success in Conference USA and Tulsa and start bringing in the AQ money to where they can invest in building up their football stadiums and recruiting and bringing in the, the top people that they need to compete You've already seen what Memphis is capable of in basketball. And before they hired Larry Porter, they were actually going to some bowl games and having a moderate level of success for being a program like Memphis. But I feel like they're in in a recruiting hotbed so they can go into that Memphis area, that northern Mississippi area, and, and further north in Tennessee and even reach out across the river into Arkansas and recruit, bring in some of those uh, talented players that won't go to programs like Mississippi State or Ole Miss or Tennessee, Texas, whoever else is recruiting in that area, and start getting those three or four star recruits that are the leftovers and start rebuilding that program into what it can be, which is a very solid program. I'm not saying that they're ever going to compete for a national championship, but they could be in the hunt in this Big East. Absolutely, and that's uh, that's going to be an exciting plotline to follow as it continues to unfold. Uh, so many twists and turns in this conference realignment stuff that's been going on this season. Uh, the Big 12 was dead at one point, and now it's going strong again, and then the Big East was dead, and now it's fine. And It's just interesting how things continue to change at the status quo kind of manages to remain intact. Yeah, I feel like this is a movie trilogy that needs to be made about conference realignment this year with West Virginia being sued by the Big East and and maintaining their contract and West Virginia saying, no, we paid you two and a half million dollars so you said we could leave and then, you know, Syracuse and Pitt, you know, unsuspectingly saying, you know, hey, we're piecing out, you know, chucking a deuce and trying to bolt through the door to join the ACC and then TCU saying, hey, we'll join, not, you know, and, and going to the Big 12 and the Big 12 on the verge of collapse, working with the Pac-12. I mean, this is all stuff that I would sit in a movie theater and pay good money to watch on a big screen. Absolutely, just so much drama. And I feel like that West Virginia lawsuit, when you mentioned that, 
some of the stuff that was coming to light in that was almost like somebody sending a text message talking crap about you that they meant to send to somebody else <laughs> and it just kind of the stuff that came up that was uh, the various bickering and back and forth going on between the, the conference and the program yeah, yeah it, it, it's all fun and ridiculous it's like uh, like Pitt AD got on his phone after like taking a couple too many shooters one night and sent a, and sent a dirty text message to uh, John Marinato and now he got pissed off and, and they're parting ways I mean it's crazy uh, this this is a movie I'm, I'm, what we're watching is a soap opera unfold that somebody's gonna buy the license to and turn it into a movie with Peter Jackson Excellent. I I can't uh, I can't wait to watch that, and I feel like this game on Saturday is going to have some uh, cinematic quality drama to it. Uh, looking forward to it. And Jordan, I can't thank you enough for coming on and taking this time to chat on the SaturdayBlitz.com podcast. Uh, oh, thank you so much for having me, man. I had a blast. Absolutely. And uh, one more time, why don't you let everybody know where they can check you out uh, on the net? All right. Well, uh, I'll write for SaturdayNightSlant.com. Go ahead. I'll write for uh, it's an LSU website, but I write about LSU, but also about the state of college football in general. A lot of realignment stories going up there. Uh, also, a lot of state stories, too, involving the two-lane coaching search, how LSU's doing. I'm going to have a bit ar- big article about the aftermath of LSU and Alabama. And you can also follow my stuff on Twitter at LA Sports Dude. I tweet about college football and NFL and uh, even a little college basketball once that season starts kicking off. Excellent. Well, I can't uh, recommend Jordan's stuff enough. I highly recommend you check it out. And thank you for checking out the SaturdayBlitz.com podcast. Hopefully you'll enjoy the game of the century. It lives up to all its billing. I want to thank Jordan again and want to thank you again for listening. This is Kyle Kensing signing off for this week.